Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Allahumma shakhli sabi rasul al-amri akhli raqdakum min lisani yafqa al-qawli. Rabbiya sallamu al-hadik ala muhammad wa ala sahbihi rabbi. I am elaborating upon the khutbah that I gave today in Friday prayer. Imagine that there is someone, a Muslim, someone who calls himself a Muslim, who mocks the language of the Quran, mocks the themes of the Quran, particularly the idea that there is going to be Jannah or paradise or that there is going to be hellfire and punishment calls it children's play who makes fun of the idea that God describes God's self as light upon light makes fun of the idea of the language of the Quran about the throne of God, mocks the par parables and stories that the Quran tells, insists that the Quran was nothing more than the creation of Muhammad now, this person who claims to be a Muslim is then invited by the leader of one of the main Muslim countries in the world, invited as an honored guest in which he gives a lecture in which ministers, not just ministers, is present, but the leader of this Muslim country himself is present. And this individual is honored and awarded and given all the accolades that you can imagine. What, what would you say about the leader of the Muslim country that invited this person, that hosted this person, that honored this person, that gave this person many platforms to speak? Well, this is not a fictitious story. The person I'm talking about, his name is Ahmed Hassan Qabanji. And he says the things that I described about the Quran and his mocking. He calls himself the president of an, or an association uh, for liberal Islam, whatever that means in this context. And he was invited and honored and awarded and all of the former by Muhammad bin Zayed, the emir of Abu Dhabi, the leader, the de facto leader of the United Arab Emirates. Why should we care? Why should it matter? And this is the point I want to elaborate upon. How did we end up in this situation? First, I want to focus on a critical idea. Many of us, 
especially those of us who are younger in age with the usefulness and all of that, we think of ourselves as independent autonomous thinkers. In reality, it is very difficult to achieve autonomous consciousness. In reality, our sense of the world, our, if you will, epistemological awareness, our awareness of, of right from wrong, is very much socially constructed, very much constructed by all those we deal with and the information that is available to us and often that is readily available to us. Information constructs our awareness, our consciousness. And so if you look at the present moment, you will find that particularly anything related to Islam has come under deep skepticism and standing accusations where Islam, speaking through Muslims, obviously, is constantly placed as a defendant, forced to vindicate itself and defend itself again and again and again. This might be explainable if these epistemological platforms existed only in non-Muslim countries, existed only in Western countries. But in reality, we find that this deep skepticism about Islam pervades the world. It has influenced the formation of a genocide against the Rohingyas in Myanmar. It has influenced the rise of Hindu nationalism and Hindu extremism and the plight of Kashmiri Muslims and the plight of Muslims in India. It has influenced the Chinese government and the way the Chinese government deals with the um, Uyghur Muslims or Uyghur Muslims it has influenced the fact that as we approach this coming Ramadan, Muslim scholars in Saudi Arabia and Egypt and the Emirat in so many parts of the world are locked up in prisons. How did we get here? And here there's an, a critical story that needs to be remembered and told. You've heard me speak about colonialism many times, and you've heard me speak about the legacy of colonialism, but there's a very specific um, narrative that we need to deal with and we need to be aware of. The 1980s was a period 1970s and 1980s was a period which witnessed the rise of multiculturalism, multicultural pluralism, 
as a dominant ideological dogma. The idea was the destruction of the Soviet bloc or the withering away of the Soviet bloc and the, the coming of the end of the Cold War was the idea that liberal Western democracies can preserve and celebrate pluralist societies, which many cultures can exist equal and can exchange with one another the best of what they have. And that this multiculturalism is the path forward in a world that is no longer plagued by colonialism and no longer plagued by the Cold War. There was an issue, though, is that multiculturalism threatened many people within Western societies, liberal democratic Western societies, that perceived multiculturalism and pluralism as a threat to what they defined as native cultures, native cultures that were generally identified or associated or um, connected to notions of liberalism, democracy, uh, civic rights, the rise of multiculturalism directly gave rise to a counter-movement of nativist nationalistic ideologies. These nativist ideal, uh, nativist nationalistic ideologies anchored themselves in a broad Judeo-Christian identity, however you define Judeo-Christian, but they often spoke about a Judeo-Christian identity, and that this Judeo-Christian identity is the origins and basis for everything that is good about the West. Perhaps the pluralist multicultural movement culminated in the election of Obama to the presidency of the United States, but the very election of Obama to the presidency of the United States sounded the alarm for a lot of nativist movements who saw this as a um, as a siren, if you will, as a danger, um, as an alarm sign, as as a a a, a, a an indication of impending danger to what they identified as authentic, nativist, pure Western liberal liberal values, liberal here in the sense, uh, in not in the technical sense, but in the sense of the way that many Western societies, even those anchored in the right wing, anchored in in Christian right wing movement or or right wing Zionism, uh, 
believe themselves to be the embodiment of uh, Rousseau and Locke liberal democratic values which respect human rights and respect human dignity and anchor themselves in individualism and capitalism and so on and so forth. Okay. Now the part that concern that, that I'm talking about here is part of the nativist movement in Western societies was a rampant hostility to Islam and we don't need to get into why and, and, and how and all of that, but what the rise of the Islamophobic movement, which for whether correctly or not identified Islam as the major threat, sort of the the, the Trojan horse, the, the, the danger that comes, that sneaks in through the auspices of multiculturalism. So in other words, they saw multiculturalism and pluralism as opening the back door to the rise of Islamism and the threat of Islamism to Europe and the United States to the West broadly. And again, I'm not focused on whether that threat is true or not true. That's not the issue now. The issue, though, is that as we know that especially towards the end of the Obama era, his second term, the end of his second term, the neoconservative movement recollected itself, reorganized itself, refinanced itself in order to regain what they've lost in the Bush era, whether the Bush the father or Bush the son, and to make sure that they try to regain as much lost territory, as much territory that they saw, that they thought they've lost during the Obama years. Islamophobia could have remained a primarily Western phenomenon but it has become universal and international phenomena. How did it become a universal and an international phenomena? That would have been impossible if Islamophobia found itself counterbalanced on the other side by a staunch Muslim defense coming from Muslim countries for a defense of Islam, the Islamic tradition, Islamic history, the Islamic religion, the way that Islamophobia became a dominant international and universal movement, the way it infiltrated the epistemology of every human being on the face of the earth, the way that it grew to a point that it now affects the way the Rohingyas are treated in Myanmar or the way that the Uyghur Muslims are treated in China or the way that Muslims are treated in India or the way that Muslims are treated in Africa, the way that happened is when they managed 
to win to the Islamophobic side the leaders of major Muslim countries in the world. Because once they've won over the leaders of major Muslim countries in the world, there's no longer a counterbalance. There's no, Islamophobia is not being contradicted by any institutionalized, organized movement at any level. How did that happen? We have to step back and understand that whether the Arab Spring threatened to put Islamists in power or not, what the Arab Spring did is that it raised the danger of democratizing many Muslim countries in the world, bringing in democracy with a local flavor, overthrowing despots in countries like Egypt, Yemen, Tunisia, Algeria, Libya, and bringing, instead of these despots, democratic movements of one sort or another whether with an Islamic flavor or without an Islamic flavor. Among the people to react most strongly to the so-called Arab Spring and the revolutionary movements of, the, of 2011 were the leaders of Gulf countries, the traditional defenders and protectors of Wahhabi Islam or other forms of conservative Islam. The one that I want to focus on is Muhammad bin Zayed, the leader of Abu Zabi, because Muhammad bin Zayed played a critical role, him and the ambassador of the United Arab Emirates to the US, Yusuf al-Adeba, and the ambassador of Saudi Arabia to the United States, Adel al-Jabir, at the time of the Arab Spring. Both Yusuf al-Adeba and Adel al-Jabir had become extremely influential, they speak, English fluently, they were educated in Georgetown, they attended the National Defense University, which, by the way, is a major center for both training the military and counterterrorism units, but also a major center for Islamophobia in the United States. Many of the professors that educate our military themselves have been they're, they're, the way they see Islam, the way they understand everything about Islam is from within Islamophobic, Islamophobic premises. But at the moment of the Arab Spring, Adil al-Jabir and Yusuf al-Atayba became extremely active in the 
annals of power in the 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 places of power within Washington D.C. and this was remember at the end of the of the Obama era and before the beginning of the Trump era. In insisting that any democratic movement in the Muslim world is bound to bring Islamists to power, and attempting everything within their power to convince the politicians of the United States and the politicians of Britain and the politicians of the European Union that democracy in the Muslim world equals an Islamic threat. That if you accept democracy in the Muslim world, those who will come to power will be Islamists. And that Islamists are always ready to use the democratic movement to pounce on power, and that once they pounce on power, they're going to unite all these Islamic leaders around the Muslim world are going to unite, and they're going to form something like the Khilafah, like the Caliphate, and then this Caliphate is going to pose a eminent and present threat against the West. During the Obama era, Obama himself was not enthusiastic about listening to individuals like Adil al-Jabir and Yusuf al-Atayba. Obama himself was not enthusiastic about receiving the alarmist dogma of these people. But who was enthusiastic, who was, in fact, very responsive, were key players who are going to be major players in the Trump era, but individuals like James Mattis, often referred to as Mad Dog Mattis, who played a critical role in the war in Iraq and the war in Afghanistan. And for Mattis, Mattis didn't differentiate between one Islamist and another. For Mattis, there is no such thing as moderate Islamist. And there is no such thing as a democratic Islamist. For Mattis, the only good Muslim is a Muslim who has nothing to do with politics or any public issues or any social issues. Other people, someone who was very influential and who Obama eventually at one point fired as as Secretary of Defense, Michael Flynn. Michael Flynn, if you read his book, The Field Field of Fight, Michael Flynn is very open about one of the major reasons for his dissent or his, his, his problem within the Obama administration was that Michael Flynn was rapidly anti-Islamic. He believed, as he says in his book, that uh, Islam is not a religion, that it's an ideology, and that it's a dangerous ideology, and that the Prophet Muhammad himself is a dangerous man. Michael Flynn himself is a very devout Christian, But what makes this story particularly interesting is that Michael Flynn and James Mattis were close to who? 
They were close to the United Arab Emirates ambassador to the U.S. and to the Saudi ambassador to the U.S. While Obama himself was not interested in what they had to say about how dem democracy in the Muslim world cannot work, those who were ready to listen and welcomed them and opened their arms to them were people like James Mattis and Michael Flynn. Add to that, it's a person who played a critical role in the, in, in the type of state that Muslims are in today. And that is the Secretary of State during the Obama era, John Kerry. While Obama himself was ambiguous, um, rather noncommittal about whether he wants democracy in the Muslim world or not, John Kerry himself saw democracy as a threat to U.S. economic interests and thought that those who continue delivering on the economic interests of the United States as people like the ambassador of the United Arab Emirates and the ambassador of, of Saudi Arabia. So John Kerry preferred to work with the ambassadors of these two countries and saw democracy as dangerous to the economic interests and, and God knows whether he shared their view of Islam or not. We actually don't know. John Kerry himself doesn't tell us, unlike Michael Flynn or James Mattis, who are quite open about their hostility to Islam. Okay. But there were other key players as well. People like Chuck Hagel, who was at one point Secretary of Defense, who is very anti-Islamic. People like Senator Paul Rand, who was very active in wanting to make sure that who believed that democracy in the Muslim world poses a threat to the United States and that democracy confuses the, the, the issues. The only democratic country in the Middle East is Israel, and it has to remain Israel, and it has to always be Israel. And so Paul Rand was willing very much to work with the ambassadors of the United Arab Emirates and of Saudi Arabia to defeat any democratic, nascent democratic movements in the Middle East. Okay, now what, what is the key thing here, though? The key thing is the role played by a character like Mohammed bin Zayed. Now, for whatever reason, Mohammed bin Zayed, the leader of Abu Zabi and the de facto leader of the United Arab Emirates, Someone who has an, an infinite amount of financial resources under his hands. For whatever reason, from the time that Muhammad bin Zayed was raised as a child in the United Arab Emirates, eventually Muhammad bin Zayed goes to Gordston School in Britain, the, the same school where Prince Charles attended, uh, goes to... Uh, receives 
and education in various Western institutions and becomes fascinated with what, uh, particularly American military technology. But along, somewhere along his journeys, Muhammad bin Zayed becomes a rabid anti-Islamist. Somewhere along the way, Muhammad bin Zayed grows very close to individuals like Flynn, Michael Flynn, James Mattis, Paul Rand, um, John Kerry, to these. But Muhammad bin Zayed undergoes some type of transformation where not only is he a, a rabid anti-Islamist, but for him, he wants a type of Islam that effectively, um, he calls it pluralism and calls it tolerance. But what it is, is the universality of all religions. That basically, whether you're a Muslim or a Jew or a Christian or a Buddhist or a Hindu, it doesn't matter. All of us worship God the same. It doesn't matter whether you approach God through Christianity or through Islam or through Judaism. But beyond that, Muhammad bin Zayed believed that anything that excites religious passion within Muslims is inherently dangerous. That it is to, write, to, to excite religious passions within Muslims, you are exciting the potential for radicalism, you're exciting the potential for extremism, you're exciting the potential for violence, which happens to be precisely the outlook of what type of people? Islamophobes. It remarkable parallels between the outlook of Islamophobes, the perspective of Islamophobes, that any believing Muslim is a dangerous Muslim. And precisely the way Muhammad bin Zayed perceived and saw Islam as a religion that has to be suppressed by a forceful and dictatorial and despotic state, otherwise this religion is dangerous. So what we saw happening is a natural alliance between Muhammad bin Zayed and the Islamophobic movement represented in people like Michael Flynn and Stephen Bannon, a natural alliance between Muhammad bin Zayed and the Islamophobes, particularly in the United States. And that's why you find that most Islamophobes, including people like Daniel Pipes, have been invited to the Emirates, have been celebrated in the Emirates, have been treated like honored guests in the Emirates, that Muhammad bin Zayed celebrated and welcomed every major and minor Islamophobe, whether Muslim or non-Muslim, in the United Arab Emirates. Today, United Dubai, is known for its commercial activity and prostitution. It's a hubbub for prostitutes. Abu Dhabi is where everyone who hates Islam goes. So Muhammad bin Zayed aligned himself with the neocon movement and the right-wing movement in the United States 
to help Trump get elected, who is an Islamophobe himself, and to two, second, make sure that the type of Islam that remains in the Muslim world is an Islam that cannot possibly support any type of democratic movement, any type of populist movement, any type of movement for social justice. It is a religion of rituals and decorum, but no values. Muhammad bin Zayed would not be an important figure if he didn't have an enormous amount of money. And so Muhammad bin Zayed funded a war in Libya, funded a war in Yemen, funded a war in Syria. Muhammad bin Zayed is directly responsible for the assassination of the entire generation of moderate Muslim leaders in Syria. He is directly responsible for the failure of the Syrian revolution. And he is also directly responsible for numerous assassinations in Yemen, numerous assassinations in Libya, for funding Islamophobic organizations around the world, for celebrating and supporting the extremist Hindu government of India, for supporting the Chinese government against the Uyghurs, and in fact encouraging the Chinese government to round up the Uyghurs in concentration camps and exterminate them. Wherever you find a movement against any form of active Islam, you find Emirati money involved. But Muhammad bin Zayed played another really important role, a direct role in getting the U.S. government to support the rise of MBS, Muhammad bin Salman of Saudi Arabia, to support him in power, to support him taking power over in Saudi Arabia, and to support the coup in Egypt against a democratic elected, democratically elected government, but more specifically and more precisely, to make sure that the person who rises to power in Egypt is himself an Islamophobe. That person, the current president of Egypt, Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, is good friends with Michael Flynn and had been good friends with Michael Flynn for a long time. Again, Michael Flynn, a Christian right-wing fanatic who wrote a book spewing out his hatred of Islam. Look at, read for yourself what Michael Flynn says about his friendship with Abdel Fattah al-Sisi and how happy he was when Muhammad bin Zayed basically was lobbying the American government to support the coup in Egypt and to particularly pick Sisi, Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, to take over in Egypt and become the president of Egypt. There's another key player, and this key player was the Israeli government. The Israeli general, Aryeh Eldad, Eldad wrote 
about the war that the alliance that the Israeli government, Netanyahu's right-wing government, the alliance they formed with the, United, with the Emirates and Mohammed bin Zayed to make sure that specifically Mohammed bin Salman comes to power in Saudi Arabia and Abdel Fattah al-Sisi comes to power in Egypt. Part of those lobbying within the United States for the U.S. to support the military coup in Egypt and to particularly support the rise of Abdel Fattah al-Sisi to power was, according to Eldad himself and what he's written, was an alliance between Netanyahu's government and Mohammed bin Zayed's government. And eventually, when MBS is stabilized in his position, it becomes a three-way alliance. MBZ, Mohammed bin Zayed, Netanyahu's government, and the Saudi government. Now, this, as we saw when Trump visited Saudi Arabia, after, shortly after he was elected, it's, it's exactly the type of scenario that they wanted is for to use Saudi Arabia and the Emirates as a cash cow for the U.S. As basically the U.S. would, would pick up the phone and order them to provide the U.S. economy with money, to pump money into the U.S. economy, and they would do it to buy an enormous amount of American weapons whether they need them or not, whether they use it or not, it doesn't matter. That's precisely the bottom line that they wanted. But away from the economic issues, there is an ideological movement, and that is the, ideal, the Christian right movement and the right-wing Zionist movement, the Israeli extreme right-wing part of the Israeli Zionist movement that was not interested so much in the bottom line cash money issues as much as they were interested in the ideological civilizational battle. So here is the thing. Mohammed bin Zayed and in the writings of general Israeli generals like Ildad, they are quite, um, quite frank about what they see as the threat coming from the Islamist movement. In their language, the Islamic movement has civilizational aspirations. The argument goes something like this. We don't care whether the Islamic movement is moderate or not moderate. We don't care whether it's, whether it's ISIS or not ISIS, whether it's Qaeda or not Qaeda. What we care about is that they have civilizational aspirations, whatever that means. They want a rebirth in some form or another of an Islamic civilization. For people like Michael Flynn, Stephen Bannon, 
James Mattis, that Islamic civilization, that Islamic civilizational aspiration would be a threat to Israel and would be a threat to Western dominance. Why allow these Muslims, why wait on these Muslims until they, they form a real threat to us before we move against them? And there is no amount, nothing you can say to convince these people that Muslims have democratic aspirations like any other human beings on the face of this earth, or that it's uh, that the Muslims of Kashmir could have a just cause, or the Muslims of Chechnya could have a just cause, or that the Muslims in China could have a just cause. All Muslims are equally dangerous because all Muslims are just waiting until they form their ummah, and from their ummah, then they unite in some civilizational entity that will pose a threat to Israel and the rest of the West. For people like Muhammad bin Zayed and Muhammad bin Salman and Abdul Fattah al-Sisi, they're much more pragmatic. They don't care whether there are civilizational aspirations or not. That's not what they worry about. What they worry about is the only people who can form the type of massive political and social transformation that destabilizes autocratic and despotic governments in the Middle East and creates some type of democratic governance or another are people who speak in the name of religion. So for Muhammad bin Zayed and Muhammad bin Salman and, and Abdul Fattah al-Sisi, the type of Islam they're willing to tolerate is any form of Islam that is either apolitical completely or any type of Islam that is dictatorial and autocratic in nature. But any form of Islam that has democratic aspirations must be suppressed and extinguished from the very beginning. Two players, those who fear the Islamists as the carriers of civilizational aspirations, and those who fear the Islamists as carriers of some type of democratic potential. But politics makes strange bedfellows. What unites both of these players is their hatred for Islamists and their hatred for any form of Islamic activism. When they got into bed together, they've created a bizarre new world. So very quickly, let me just give you a, a, a quick picture of this bizarre new world. While in the U.S. you have the Robert Spencers, the Daniel Pipes, the Michael Flynn's, th those who are trashing Islam left and right, day in and day in and out, day in and day out, they are extremely well funded. They have a lot of rich people who believe that yes, you have to work really hard to make sure an Islamic civilization never peers its ugly head anywhere around the world. In the Muslim world, 
you have a government like Abdel Fattah al-Sisi of Egypt every single day, every single Ramadan, and Ramadan is, is approaching, so we will see it again. All those who are allowed to appear on the state-owned Egyptian media are people like Islam al-Bihiri. Islam al-Bihiri does nothing every single episode, or Al-Baz, another one of these people, or someone like Shahrur, who was hosted in Egypt a million times, who do nothing but trash Islam, trash the Sira, trash the Sunnah, trash the Quran every single day. So if you're raised as a Muslim in a country like Egypt, every time you put on the TV, you'll hear someone telling you how bad Islam is. At the same time, all the Muslim scholars are either in prison or either banned from appearing on TV or appearing, and even if they appear on the net and start posting things on the net, if they become too popular, they get arrested immediately. Someone like Muhammad bin Zayed in the Emirates, last Ramadan, every single day, the Abu Dhabi TV hosted Shahroor. Shahroor who tells us that the, the idea that Islam has five pillars is nonsense. Shahroor calls this the biggest disaster, that Islam is based on five pillars. Shahroor told us that he, he's, he died. Shahroor told us that zina is okay as long as you do it in private. Shahroor said you don't have to fast Ramadan. Shahroor said that Hajj doesn't have to be in Dhul-Hijjah. Shahroor basically was undermining the entire edifice of interpretive communities, inherited interpretive communities, replacing it with what? Replacing it with the law of the state as the law of Islam. So can you live with a woman out of wedlock? According to Shahroor, it depends on the law of the state. If the state says you can, then it's okay with Islam. If the state says you can't, then it's okay with then that's then you can't. Shahroor, according to Shahroor, if you if you actually study what he says about everything when it comes to interpreting God's law, God's law ends up always being contingent on whatever the state wants. Shahroor never talked about democracy, never talked about human rights, never talked about individual rights, never defended personal liberties, but he thoroughly deconstructed Islam from the inside so that you can't trust the Quran, you can't trust the Prophet, you can't trust anything that came from an inherited tradition. And where was Shahroor celebrated? and hosted every single day of Ramadan, it was in Abu Zabi. Someone like Qabanji, who I mentioned, again, hosted where in Abu Zabi? Now, Abu Zabi, some of you might say, well, but this is tolerance. The fact that they host someone like Qabanji is our Shahroor, this is because they want to practice tolerance. 
That would be true if they would also be willing to host people like Yusuf al-Qaradawi or people like Salman al-Uda. If Emirati prisons wasn't full of Muslim scholars, anyone who has a view of Islam that has anything to do with democracy, anything to do with human rights, anything to do with social justice, is thrown in prison in the Emirat. Someone like me can never be invited, not a million years, to the Emirat. But someone like Shahroor is invited and celebrated and rewarded. Same thing with Muhammad bin Salman. What is the first thing Muhammad bin Salman did? He collected all the scholars, whether on the right or on the left, and threw them into prison. Any Saudi scholar who believed in anything other than absolute autocracy was thrown in prison. At the same time, Saudi Arabia tolerated what? Tolerated Mariah Carey and rappers and, in other words, opened itself to every form of distraction. Now, why should this matter to us as American Muslims? Because, think about it for a second. Who funds the Islamophobes in the West? It's not just wealthy right-wing Christian families or right-wing Jewish families, but Emirati money and Saudi money funds the Islamophobes in the West? Who funds those who want to stand up to Islamophobia in the West? No one. I lived my entire life. I have not found a single rich Muslim who was willing to come and say, all I want from you is to go and confront the Islamophobes and here's I will take care of it. And, and you'll find that true as to across the board. Add to this the fact that some of our major Muslim institutions in the West, like Zaytuna, is funded by the Emirat. And you have people like Hamza Yusuf who is an honored guest in the Emirat. How does this affect us as Western Muslims? It is exactly as I said in my khutbah. If one of the main things that you have to do as a Muslim from the West is to identify the hypocrites, identify those who are either part of a despotic order, or those who lend support to despotism and autocracy and Islamophobia. If you're not against, if you don't join the war against Islamophobia, then you're part of the problem. If you basically want to lull Muslims into a false sense of safety, and have the Islamophobes run rampant as they ignite genocides in Kashmir and in China and in Myanmar and 
in, and, 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 and massacres in Egypt and Libya and Yemen. And you basically tell Muslims, don't worry about any of that. You know, what you should worry about is taqwa. Then they're part of the problem. But moreover, as citizens, we have to reclaim our government. We cannot allow our government to act as an agent for these ideological civilizational projects where the Christian right works to await the, the return of Jesus in the Holy Land. And Zionist right-wing movements spread their settlements on Palestinian lands. And we sit here just eating and, 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 and multiplying like farm animals. That's not our role. Our role, our role is to make sure that our government is an agent for justice and equity and to understand to understand that our consciousness is a byproduct of the historical moment in which we live. And the historical moment in which we live is replete with Islamophobia coming from the West and coming from Muslim lands. When the leader that, that controls the two holy sites, one of our holy sites is under Israeli occupation. Two of our other holy sites are under the control of an Islamophobe, Muhammad bin Salman, and if you don't believe me, read that book that just came out called MBS. This is a man who has nothing to do with Islam, who spends a crazy amount of money on his pleasure and on supporting every cause that is not Islamic. When the leader of a populous Muslim country like Egypt is indistinguishable from in his thinking from the thinking of Chuck Hagel or Michael Flynn, when his understanding of Islamic history and Islamic piety and Islamic law and Islamic politics are indistinguishable from the understanding of Michael Flynn, if you understand that, then you understand that you cannot trust anything that comes through your computer screen, leave alone anything that comes from TV. But anything that comes from your computer screen about Islam, only trust yourself. You can pick up a book about the life of the Prophet and read it for yourself. You can pick up the Quran and read it for yourself. But don't ever think, not until we create an effective response to Islamophobia in the world, the fact that the source of knowledge or information that you obtain is coming from Saudi Arabia or the Emirates, and you don't really know what's funded by Saudi Arabia or the Emirates anymore. 
But the fact the fact that it presents itself through the medium of the internet doesn't mean that you can trust it. This is the part of the khutbah that I couldn't cover in the time I dedicated for the khutbah. I feel bad for our young generation because they have to grow up in these circumstances. But remember that for the first time, there's a prayer that I always repeat and it's taken from the Quran. اللهم إن صلاتي و اللهم إن نسكي وصلاتي ومحياي ومسعيي ومماتي لله رب العالمين وأنا أول المسلمين. الله accept my prayer, accept my life, accept my death as dedicated and committed to you, and always can treat me as if I am the first Muslim. It is only these circumstances that we've lived in that allowed me to truly appreciate the meaning of this prayer. To plead with God that you have the independence of thought and autonomy and integrity to be as if the first Muslim. To refuse to be influenced by anything that might tempt you to think ill of your faith and to think ill of your tradition and to say, Allah protect me from all the fitan that surround me so I can be true to, your, true to myself and true to you. That, alhamdulillah, rabbil alameen, ana wa